Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BB99, Romania, in 1989-90 period. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 209, January the 4th, 1990. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss with Gary Mose, the editor of the Calcedon Report, his recent trip to the Central European area, in particular Romania. Romania has been very much in the news, and it is an area where Gary has been three times, I believe, and he has uh, close connections there with the pastors who have suffered uh, as a result of the persecution. Uh, Gary, would you like to give us a general introduction to the picture there in Romania? Well, it's difficult to uh, talk about Romania right now because the conditions are changing daily, and whatever we say today may be outdated um, by the time this tape is heard, I discovered that when I uh, wrote an article for the upcoming issue of the Calcedon Report, and before it could get to print, uh, the article was out of date. But uh, in general, um, of course, one must be uh, positive, and, and must, uh, a Christian must rejoice over much of what is happening there in terms of... Uh, the increase in freedom, particularly in religious freedom. Uh, nevertheless, the country is, uh, has had such a long history of, uh, of disaster and of chaos, of totalitarian rule, that uh, the fall of the, the recent government uh, has left a tremendous vacuum in every way, socially, politically, economically, religiously, uh, so that it will take a, a great many years to rebuild that country. In, in every way. I think that's a very important point because one of the things that people nowadays uh, do not think about is the fact that when a country has been radically decapitalized, as all the Iron Curtain countries have been, recovery is not something that occurs overnight. It's a slow long, difficult process. Uh, if I may comment a little further on that, the most remarkable recovery, of course, perhaps in history, was of Germany after World War II under Earhart's economic policies. But that was after a relatively short span of time under Nazi rule. And you still had the people with the basic character of their uh, Christian past, whereas the character of the people in Central Europe has in many instances been warped. They've gotten used to uh, the state doing everything, and it'll be difficult for recapitalization to develop, especially when they start with next to nothing. 
that's clearly the case in Romania. Um, there are some elements in the society which uh, hold promise for the reconstruction of, of that society. Um, the Romanian people basically are, are creative people. Uh, they're resilient. But uh, the, the last 30 years of uh, despotic rule have, uh, have so debilitated them. Um, one man I talked to who was an engineer in a factory there, part, that was his full-time job, but he had another job, more important one, underground. But he told me uh, in Romania uh, there is no such thing as industry. The, the people, one of the ways that they resisted was simply to um, the sandbag um, in, in all of their uh, official uh, capacities. They, if they worked in a factory, they just didn't work. And they spent all of their time uh, scheming uh, ways to get around the system, uh, living by their wits moment by moment. Um, as to the Christians, uh, rather than living by their wits, uh, I can say, say very clearly that uh, many of them lived by the Spirit. Whereas uh, those who had no faith uh, had to live by their wits and in many ways uh, involved themselves in uh, questionable and criminal activity because of it. Christians uh, lived on a miraculous level. I think I may have mentioned that in a previous discussion. Um, but clearly those uh, with, a, with a vibrant faith um, got around the system by depending totally on the, uh, the Spirit of God. Well, the production of food, the production of goods has not suddenly blossomed with the end of the old order. Um, so I don't think things have changed that much, probably, from what you saw. Would you describe how you saw uh, Romania when you were there? Well, each of the three times. The first time was in 1985, second time in 1987, and this third time just a few months ago. And October of 89, um, the situation was much the same, although it just continued to deteriorate each time. Um, you, you probably heard the reports on, uh, on radio and TV and in the newspapers that the people were starving, and that is a very literal fact. Uh, people had no food. Uh, what little food was available was tightly rationed. Um, even the staples, uh, bread, uh, milk, oil, which is a very important uh, element in, in their way of cooking, if they cooked, had anything to cook. Uh, all of the staples were, were just simply non-existent, and, and the people uh, either had to raise things illegally in their backyards or um, on the sly, which many people did, or they just starved. And, uh, that does not mean that there wasn't food available. As a matter of fact, since the revolution, suddenly, uh, according to reports, uh, there is food in the stores. Uh, much of what was being produced and what was there was being hoarded by, uh, by the elite, particularly uh, the secret police, the Securitate forces, Ceausescu and his close henchmen. So there were, there were things there, but they were... Uh, held close to the chest of those who considered themselves privileged, not only food, but uh, all other kinds of material things. Uh, if you went into a tourist hotel, you would find uh, special shops there, 
called dollar shops, and they were loaded with things from not only things produced domestically, even large ticket items like uh, refrigerators and washing machines, um, but also imported goods, uh, Japanese uh, um, electronic equipment and so on, clothes. It was all there. The problem was that nobody had access to it. The stores that uh, the, the masses had access to were empty. Food stores, clothing stores, you name it. A few things they had, would have on display simply for display purposes, but there was nothing to buy. I saw <coughs> today's, I think, either today or a few days ago, <coughs> an article in the Wall Street Journal about Romania. And incidentally, their business of being dependent upon the state would go back about 55 years, beginning about the middle of the 30s until today, which means that a man 60 years old would only be 15 at that time. So only the very elderly remember even the uh, facade of a free market in any true sense of the word. Uh, today, the recent article in the journal pointed out that a great deal of the food from Romania went to the Soviets. This uh, particular angle of the Soviet colony, Soviet colonization of Middle Europe, has never really been brought up. Everyone seems to be looking away from the Soviet crimes, from the nature of the Soviet system, the caliber of the of the Rus Russian people who have been living off the fruits of the labor of all these other people for all these years. Uh, there's no comparison between the Soviets, for instance, and the Nazis. Uh, nobody seems to have ever found a war criminal in the Soviet Union. Uh, they didn't exist. It's a very strange kind of myopia. But going back to Romania, according to the article, one of the big problems is that practically everyone who has a skill was part of the establishment. And the people who are not part of the establishment are unskilled, uneducated, because in order to get an education or a skill, you had to go along with the establishment. So you have here, I would say, something similar to what's occurred in the Soviet Union and other totalitarian countries. You have the uh, deliberate corruption of the people because in order to get ahead, you have to sell your soul to the devil. And that leaves the whole nation without leadership. Yeah, that's clearly the case um, in Romania. If, if you did not cooperate, you could not have a job. Uh, your children, if they would go to school at all, would be harassed uh, terribly in the schools. Um, you could not live where you wanted to live. You were assigned a place to live. You had to cooperate to survive, uh, which means uh, that most of the people cooperated. Then. I, w I would not say that in every case they sold their soul. They they did so at least on the surface, but there was a, uh, a deep down, um, at least an inner resistance uh, hanging on to their soul. That's particularly the case, I think, for in some of the minority groups, with the Hungarian particularly. Uh, 
Hungarians in, uh, in Romania. Romania. Yeah. There are other minority groups there too, are there not? Oh, I imagine so. Uh, there, there are, are some are, Armenians. Yes, definitely. There are Armenians. The Hungarian group is, uh, is oh. the largest minority and it was as such the most persecuted. It was the, the group that was chosen to be a scapegoat for all the ills of Romania. And Armenians? No, the, the Hungarians. The Hungarians. Yes. Mm. You have, uh, you know, as you said, many people cooperated in order just to survive, and these are the people who had the skills, and these, are, of course, are the people who are going to be carrying on. These are the ones who are, those who have leadership skills are the ones who, uh, who rose through the ranks uh, by cooperating the, the best. That, that does not bode well, because these are people who were trained in the system, and and even if they don't now announce themselves to be communists or even consider themselves to be communists, it's all they know. Well, I don't think we can condemn the people who outwardly cooperated when you realize that this country, through its State Department, rebuked our ambassador for telling the State Department the truth of what was going on in Romania. That is what has really disturbed me about the just the recent news coverage and, and the, the recent, recent release of information and the position of our government. Everything that is now being reported as, a, as a, an astonishing revelation uh, has just been brought to light. was known. It's been known for uh, yes. a couple of decades. In, in, well, 19, in 1978, the, the chief of the Romanian secret police uh, Colonel Ian Pasipa defected to the United States and, and told everything that we're yes, seeing now uh, to the CIA, and the CIA refused to believe him. Finally, he went public uh, just the last couple of years in a very sensational book called Red Horizons, and, and everything that we're seeing revealed now has is, is already been known in that book. Well, George Schultz is the one who called in Funderburg uh -huh. and rebuked him for reporting what the government was doing to the people. And Funderburg told me this in Washington. Yes. He said, I said, what was his argument? He said, well, his argument was that I was sent there to become, to maintain friendly relationships with that government and not to send back reports that were critical of it. We must remember, too, that Queen Elizabeth made Tochescu an honorary knight of the British Empire I believe the King of Norway and several other uh, uh, countries honored uh, Ceausescu mightily. Including the, the United States. Uh, of course, Romania was, I think, the only for a while uh, Eastern Bloc nation that was granted, granted most favored nation trade yes. status. Well, I think that's because that was, that they was withdrawn and then it was put back in again. They broke with the Soviets officially, at least, regarding the Israel. Well, they broke with the Soviets uh, on almost every uh, front, including uh, the Olympic Games. That, uh, again, was revealed in Pasipa's book as being a, uh, a disinformation operation. Um, Romania, in fact, was very closely tied to the Soviet Union during the whole period of time which it portrayed itself as being a uh, maverick in the bloc, uh, but this was calculated deliberately to 
to win Western support, and Ceausescu was very skillful at this. He spent most of his time traveling outside of the country and, and making himself uh, good friends with people like Queen Elizabeth and U.S. presidents and virtually anybody who would receive him, and almost everybody did. And he went out of his way to develop this image of being uh, a progressive, um, independent thinker within the bloc for the, the very purpose of uh, attracting Western uh, investment and, and interest and, and establishing uh, relations with uh, Western ties. This goes um, back a long way. Under Lyndon Johnson, there was a proposal which went through the Department of State, and that was Dean Rusk at that time, to build a synthetic rubber plant in Romania because Romania is very rich in oil. Should be one of the richest countries in Middle Europe because of the oil deposits it has, oil reserves. And there was a big simus between Goodyear and Firestone on that occasion. Goodyear rejected this proposition. They said it uh, de Young said he didn't think it was in the best interest of the United States, which put him at odds with the Secretary of State and the President. Raymond, de Young, uh, Raymond Firestone went along with it, and the Young Americans for Freedom decided to make an issue of it, and it did become an issue. It got into the press, the right-wing and the left-wing press, and so forth. I remember the New York Times ran an editorial saying that American citizens had no business interfering with foreign policy. And that's worth remembering. And the New York Daily News, of course, came out in favor of uh, Goodyear and against Firestone. Eventually, the matter reached the sales kits of the salesmen. And believe it or not, Firestone began to lose tire sales to Goodyear, although there's really no difference in the quality of the tires because of this. And uh, it was a very interesting case because... Eventually, Firestone had to drop it. So therefore, the Romanians did not get the advanced synthetic rubber plant that the Americans were supposed to construct for them. And I remember asking Mr. de Young about two years after that what happened as a result. And he said, well, of course, government business is not the majority of our business. He said, we have about 15% governmental contracts but, he said, it was very surprising because, he said, after that, they rolled out the red carpet for us in Washington, and they were very conciliatory and worked with us on all kinds of levels. He said, how do you account for that? Well, I said, a government that <clears throat> bends with every wind is bound to bend when you blow, too. Yes. Well, without endangering the lives of anyone there, because the situation is so volatile, we don't know what can happen tomorrow. Tell us something about the Christians there and their lives and what they have endured. Okay, uh, maybe what I could do, uh, just uh, switching here from analysis to maybe anecdotes, just... Kind of, kind of uh, take your time. Take uh, take you on a little trip as I took it, uh, just uh, place by place. Uh, I began the the trip in uh, the Netherlands this time. Uh, the trip was under the auspices of a uh, group called the 
Christian Foundation for help to prisoners of uh, conscience. There's a rough translation of the Dutch name. I happen to be a member of the board of directors of the American arm of that group, the International Ambassadors of Mercy. Uh, I went to Holland and uh, received a briefing uh, for, on the situation in Hungary and Romania and also to load up uh, my small rented car with as much uh, relief supplies as I could carry. Uh, I took food, which was badly needed, and uh, medicine, which was even more badly needed, and a very large carton, several hundred items of, of prescription medicines. Um, I had business to conduct in Sweden before going there, so I carried all this with me into Sweden. I found out later that the Amsterdam to Stockholm run is the number one drug run right now. <laughs> and I found out after I had crossed the borders that uh, they were stopping cars daily and almost hourly looking for drugs at the Swedish border. And, and I guess uh, the Lord was with us uh, because we were just waved around through the border and weren't even stopped at all at customs. And coming back out again on the way to the east, uh, we were just waved through the border. In fact, we were waved through every border crossing all the way through Europe. Never had to show a passport or anything all the way through. Our first stop uh, after leaving Sweden was uh, at the United Nations Refugee Center in Linz, Austria. The reason I had gone there was to uh, meet with a young Romanian refugee and his wife whom, uh, with whom I had been corresponding for several months. This is the son of uh, a man I had met on my first trip, a believer. Uh, the father was a believer, a very high-ranking official in the government uh, who was fired from his job when he became a Christian <clears throat> and was unemployed for some six years. Uh, his family left him when he became a Christian, including this son that I just mentioned. The son was now grown. Um, and had become married, and just before fleeing Romania had become a believer himself. Um, this young man's story uh, is this. Uh, he was <coughs> determined to come to freedom, no matter what the cost. So he and his wife, who was about five months pregnant at the time, uh, decided one day to uh, disguise themselves as peasant field workers, um, took a position in a field near the Hungarian border and worked their way through the field during the day until nightfall and got themselves very close to the Danube River. And under the cover of darkness, they decided to make a break for it. But as they were running through the underbrush, they tripped some security wires, which sent off uh, flares and lit up the whole area with uh, many brightly colored flares. And of course, the Border guards discovered them as they were fleeing and as they were swimming through the river and they were under very heavy gunfire as they were making their way through the river. Miraculously, they did get through the river uh, to the Hungarian side, walked for about 30 kilometers and uh, finally arrived in a city in Hungary by the name of Zeged. From there, uh, he wrote to me, told me what had happened to him and asked for my assistance in helping him to uh, relocate in the United States. He was told by the uh, 
American Embassy in Budapest that if he could get a letter of support from the United States, he would be granted permission to emigrate as a uh, political refugee. I wrote such a letter, um, just offering my personal uh, sponsorship, and talked to some other Christian friends who agreed that if and when he would be allowed to come, they would help him become reestablished here. I got uh, a rather strange and almost nasty letter back finally from the U.S. Embassy in Budapest and said that uh, this was impossible. Uh, This young man had been told this many times there was no way possible that he could come to another country since he was safe and secure in Hungary, uh, which was considered by the United States at that time uh, a secure country and although it had not declared itself non-communist even then, uh, Apparently, the United States considered it to be virtually a Western nation and a nation of refuge. I wrote a number of other letters on this young man's behalf uh, to the State Department, uh, several more to the embassy, trying to explain the situation, told him his story once again, that he he could not possibly go back to Romania, that he was uh, in Hungary uh, without papers and as such was not able to work, so he was caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, so to speak, and could neither go back nor go, nor go, nor go forward, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, couldn't even maintain himself in the status quo. Again, uh, just nothing but rejections. I finally committed this thing to very intensive prayer, and uh, just a few days after I began praying intensively about this, I received suddenly a, a letter from the young man uh, saying that the situation had suddenly been reversed. Uh, the U.S. Embassy gave him traveling papers and he was off to Austria. He was sent first to uh, Vienna to a processing center there and then sent on to this United Nations holding center in Linz, Austria. When I got there, uh, I felt that since I was representing a uh, Christian human rights organization, I felt it was important to investigate the conditions there which I did. Uh, the people, there's probably uh, five to 10,000 refugees from all over the world uh, at this place, basically were being warehoused. Uh, they were uh, given very tiny rooms, uh, probably no bigger than most of our kitchens. And, uh, and they were being fed very well, I must say that. Uh, we were invited to have a couple of meals there and and the Austrians were doing a wonderful job of feeding them, but they were not allowed to work, and so you had uh, five to 10,000 people sitting around in idleness, and you can imagine the kind of conditions that that breeds. There's, there's a, a great deal of grumbling, there's a great deal of crime, um, vandalism. Uh, as a matter of fact, we were told that uh, a large number of the people in the refugee center were, in fact, not bona fide refugees at all, but were um, criminals that had been kicked out of their country for one reason or other, or were in fact spies who had been deliberately sent there by the governments to keep tabs on dissidents who had fled for one reason or another. So you have a very volatile situation in, in those camps. The authorities, uh, in Austri- the Austrian authorities who are maintaining the camp, um, well, I guess the best word is resent the the people who are there, although they take care of them physically and uh, they don't appreciate them. 
we were told that uh, this young man and his wife and a number of other believers had had a, a worship service in their small apartment one evening and were were just quietly praying and there was suddenly a knock at the door and the uh, night porter the man in charge that evening of the whole center told them that they had to stop praying that it was against the rules that there had been complaints about them praying well this young man was outraged he said he had fled Romania and just because of that sort of thing he had come to the west in order to have freedom to pray and now he was suddenly being told that he could not pray and uh, so he told me this when I returned on the way back and and I went to the manager and lodged a formal protest about this the manager denied that it happened and and told me that if it did the, the porter was wrong and in fact the uh, people had every right to engage in religious activities in their apartments. Uh, the young man said that that every that non-believers there were they would play their music loud at all hours of the night and party and drink and uh, carry on and cause all kinds of disruptions uh, with impunity. But uh, believers praying could not. The manager told me, of course, that they had a right, but uh, I was told later that the manager was prone to say that sort of things to people from the outside who complained, and then as soon as they left, um, things returned to normal. I, uh, the conditions at this refugee center, which is operated by the United Nations, stood out in stark contrast to uh, another approach to the refugee problem I saw in Hungary. Uh, an old pastor and his wife in a small village in a remote area of Hungary um, were single-handedly running a refugee program. They had helped 125 families who had fled Romania, had come through the countryside into Hungary to their area, helped them um, buy houses, buy some animals if necessary to, to support themselves, get them jobs. Uh, through the organization that I worked with uh, to have uh, uh, clothing and furnishing for their houses and the, and the refugees here were productive and happy and uh, the contrast between a biblical approach to charity and to mercy was, was just remarkable as uh, over against what I saw in Austria. We hear a great deal about what the various countries and the UN are doing about the refugee problem but next to nothing about what Christians are doing and the truly able work is by Christian groups, Catholic and Protestant. And very few people are aware of the fact that it is Christian work the world over that is alleviating human distress in the name of Christ and is effective in so doing. It was that was really clearly the case in this in this incident I just mentioned uh, this old pastor and he's an elderly man and his wife and and, and they're really working single-handedly it's a small village of uh, well, a couple hundred of people perhaps he's buying up every house he can get in the village and going out into neighboring villages to find houses he took us to to several of the people that he's helped to resettle uh, families and, and single individuals and in every case they were they were just so uh, delighted and, and joyful in their, in their new situation and, and uh, 
in serving the Lord. He told me that he had encouraged Romanians in Romania to stay there. This is a Reformed church pastor, and uh, he, t he told me that um, these people needed to stay in Romania because if, if every true believer and every person with a vision for uh, reconstruction, if you will, for to, for capturing their society, or reclaiming it for Christ, uh, left, uh, the situation there would, would deteriorate even further. So he always encouraged people to stay, to be a witness, to be a force where they were in their communities. But he said, well, if they come anyway, I have a duty uh, before the Lord to provide for them. And, and even though his his heart was for them to stay, when they came, he just poured out his heart, opened his home. Um, both he and his wife. Um, it was interesting. Uh, when we left Sweden, uh, my traveling companion came the morning we left with a large number of boxes full of uh, uh, clothes to take along. Tell uh, us about your traveling we, companion. He's uh, an American who lives in Sweden. His name is Rocky Schmidt. A very dear friend of mine. A very dear Christian. Um, well, let me just go on with this little anecdote about what he brought along. He, uh, he took all these boxes of clothes which he loaded up and he also had a, uh, a baby buggy. A, very, a large, uh, one of these Swedish baby buggies. I mean, they're like Cadillacs. They're uh, chrome and velvet and <laughs> have all kinds of gadgets and things on them and I said Rocky how in the world are we going to cross the Romanian border with a thing like this you know we're supposed to be uh, just a couple of guys tourists uh, on a holiday going into Romania what are we doing with a baby buggy and he said well I realize that could be a problem but uh, I just feel like the Lord wants me to bring this baby buggy along and he could not be dissuaded so we packed it up and took it along in the van with us and uh, when we got to this Hungarian pastor, the Reformed Church pastor who was doing the refugee work, um, we started to unload some of the things to give to him. And uh, the, the wife spied this baby buggy and she said, Oh, the Lord has heard my prayers. She said, I have been praying since August for a baby buggy. In fact, I told one of the, the young mothers, Romanian refugee mothers, that the Lord was sending a baby buggy which you which this lady needed and she waited three months for it to come but it finally arrived and she was just thrilled how the Lord had arranged you know unbeknownst to us even why we should take such a thing so we didn't have to take it across the Romanian border but the Lord intended it for this lady in Hungary before we uh, came to this village in Hungary we stopped in Budapest after we left uh, Austria we stopped in Budapest and I met there with uh, Pastor uh, Geza Namath, who is a leading uh, Hungarian Reformed pastor in Budapest, has a, a large congregation there. It's been one of the more active churches in Hungary. Churches in Hungary tend not to be activist at all. In fact, they tend to be very pietistic. They tend to be lethargic, frankly. You know, they, the Christians uh, come to church on Sunday and listen and leave, and that's the end of it. Um, so there is a, definitely a problem with the church in in Hungary. Uh, but this pastor is one who has been uh, quite active in evangelism, in uh, meeting physical needs, uh, 
not only of his congregation but um, the population in general and particularly in, in serving the needs of Hungarian refugees and I mean Romanian refugees and Hungarians living in Romania his son and the young people of uh, the church regularly made trips into Romania to uh, serve the needs of Hungarian Christians in Romania. Uh, this pastor uh, was the one who had warned me on our first trip that it was too dangerous to bring my family into Romania and had provided a safe house for my family when I went in the first time. This time he uh, was very eager to describe the changes in Hungary and as he described the situation for the church right now, uh, the words he used were, were um, that the church is absolutely free. That's a, a quote. And he said, the, the opportunity right now is extremely ripe. Um, the field is wide open, not only for church, the churches to work there, but for outsiders to come in, missionaries, if you will. Had the government in Hungary changed at that point? It, the day we came into Hungary was the day that the Hungarian Communist Party was holding its Congress and declared itself to be a non-communist party and, and uh, gave itself a social democratic name. <laughs> uh, that was the official move, in fact, the day that we came. Back in the 20s and 30s, Hungary was one of the strong Christian areas of Europe mm -hmm. with a very large Catholic and a very large Calvinist population. Those two elements are still very strong there. And they're still uh, faithful? Well, I can't, uh, I don't know much about the Catholic uh, situation, but uh, for the Reformed groups that I have met, the contacts I've had in the Reformed Church there, I would say yes, very much so. They're faithful. Mm -hmm. Not only faithful, but are, are really have a vision for, for reconstruction. He told me that uh, um, the opportunity is, is open now for missionaries to come in, for the establishment of Christian schools, for evangelism, for the establishment of, um, of seminaries, Bible schools. Um, and he said uh, the problem is that we are not trained for this, uh, particularly in the situation that we're in right now. This is the first country to officially come out of communism that had been a communist country. Um, and but with 40 years or more of communist rule, effectively the population has become a completely secular society, if not uh, officially atheistic, at least atheistic in fact. Um, Christians are regarded by non-Christians as, as weak-kneed people, uh, people who need crutches. This is always the, the criticism that's leveled against believers. And so... Uh, to be a believer there is, is to be a, a second-class citizen, not only in terms of rights, but in terms of uh, just social attitudes. Do you think that will change? Well, it will change depending on what the church does with its opportunities right now. He asked me to, to tell Western Christians to, to please send help, to take advantage of the opportunity now, to, uh, to hold conferences, to send trainers, to... To, to teach people, uh, the, the believers there and the churches and the leadership there in a, a, a new kind of evangelism. What kind of evangelism do we need to reach this kind of a population? Maybe we should have a reconstruction conference. Well, immediately when he told me that was the first thing that came to my mind. And, and 
and I think I'm going to work on that. I really would like to see that happen. The, the charismatics have penetrated uh, Hungary. How uh, widespread is their influence there? I don't know that situation in Hungary so much. In Romania, I do. Uh, many of my contacts in Romania were with charismatics, and I would say they are probably the, uh, again, combining with the reformed groups, uh, as that's happening here in this country, uh, this combination is becoming very powerful. Uh, the Pentecostals, the charismatics in Romania are, are are growing by leaps and bounds. Their churches are packed to the gills. Um, standing room only, small uh, buildings. Uh, people are jammed in like sardines. Did the Hungarian government destroy churches? No, um, not like the Romanian government did. They, did they were turn them just into either neglected for the most part. Uh, I don't know. Uh, now, I'm sure there were some who were turned into other things or just fell into disrepair. Congregations took it upon themselves in many cases to, to keep their churches in repair. And that has been possible for a number of years in Hungary. The Hungarians had the reputation of uh, being more disobedient to their communist regime than any other Iron Curtain country. Yeah, I think that's the case. There, there was always, uh, well, you remember the revolt in uh, in '56. Yes. That that attitude was was never lost in Hungary, although they didn't try it again, uh, you know, violent revolution as they did in '56. The uh, the mental attitude that produced that stayed, and they uh, they just ate away at the uh, communist system bit by bit. Each individual in his own sphere uh, did what was necessary to resist it, and, and they, they just never uh, absorbed uh, the Stalinist mentality, resisted it all the way. Tell me how, how it was. You went across the border from Hungary to Romania? Yes, I did. Uh, the first two crossings that I made in 85 and 87 were very traumatic, and I've described those previously on an easy chair tape. Uh, in one case, was detained at the border for 12 hours, and in the second case, uh, I believe something like five or six hours. Second time, subjected to a body search and and harassment, and uh, well, it's a very traumatic experience crossing the border into Romania. At least it was until very recently. I was told this time in in Hungary, both in Budapest and and by the uh, old pastor up near the Czech border, um, that the things had had really gotten tight at the border. That in many cases people were just being turned away with no reason. If there was any discrepancy whatsoever, vehicles were being confiscated, people were being imprisoned. I mean, Westerners, anybody on the uh, on the Romanian border on the Romanian side. Yes. Um, they told me they didn't expect me to get in this time, particularly with what I was carrying, this large amount of drugs, prescription drugs, medicine, people. Well, let me make that clear. <laughs> it was not a drug. Thinking, well, <laughs> medicine. Uh, although, it, although much of it looked very, <laughs> looked very suspicious. In fact, because it looked so suspicious, I, I was really sweating this. I had more fear 
approaching the border than I had ever had um, any of the previous Our cases. Our seeding drug runner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before, just before I got there, and when I left Sweden, uh, we had a very powerful prayer meeting about this trip, uh, commissioning service, if you will, and there were a number of prophecies regarding what would happen at the border, that every door would be opened. Uh, prophecies which I almost had a hard time believing because of my previous experiences at that border and knowing how the situation had gotten even tighter because uh, you know many of the surrounding countries had already started their liberalization moves. Ceausescu was digging his heels in and, and just after I left, in fact, the borders were sealed, but uh, already then uh, things were really tightening up. So I really expected to face an even worse time this time, but because of the prayers of God's people uh, in Sweden and a number of groups here in the United States, including our Kelsey group and some other churches here in Murphy's, were praying intensely for us. Yes, I was <laughs> praying the day you crossed the border, believe well, me. Everyone was, and, and there was no doubt about it that as we approached and crossed that border that there was a spectacular supernatural intervention when we came to the border. Uh, even though supposedly conditions were much tighter, um, in this case, it was almost a joke. Uh, we were virtually waved through. We were stopped, of course, and told to take our suitcases out and open them up. I had uh, scattered the uh, medicines in all of the suitcases and packages we were carrying so as they wouldn't be all lumped together in one. And as the guards went to uh, put their hands through the suitcases, uh, very superficially, uh, they found only one item of medicine and when uh, he picked it up and uh, held it up he said what is this and he simply said it was medicine and he said okay and he put it back in the suitcase in English? yes in English and uh, I was astonished uh, the situation uh, as we were waiting to be ins inspected uh, we were of course tense based on our previous experiences my son uh, Brooke, who was along with us, who was a violinist, had a violin with him, and for some reason he took his violin out while we were waiting and started to play some light-hearted folk music at the border. It was uh, astonishing what how that changed the mood. Suddenly the tensions just all seemed to disappear. The the guards and soldiers uh, there both started to clap their hands to the music, and uh, they were smiling and making jokes to each other and. It was just bizarre almost uh, compared to what I had experienced in a border crossing before. And uh, you know, a number of things happened. Uh, they they helped us uh, in, in declaring. We had to declare the violin because it was a valuable item. Um, even though it was a used one, they put it down as a new one so we wouldn't have to pay duty on it when we came out. Now, this, is, this just didn't happen. There were just a number of very bizarre things like that. Uh, we crossed the border and without incident came to a uh, city called Satumare uh, in uh, Transylvania, which is a Hungarian city for the most part, and met with uh, a young man there who is an engineer in a factory, the one who told me that there's no such thing as industry in uh, Romania. Although he worked as an engineer, what he really was was a, a professor of ethics uh, with an underground seminary operated by a small element within a large Hungarian Reformed church. The church itself was somewhat compromised, 
um, the hierarchy was being controlled by communists. But within that, the official church, there was a small community of about 30 families, uh, which is operating an underground church, and the church, that underground group, was operating a seminary, and they were training about, I think he told me, about 100 pastors in small... Mm-hmm. In small Remarkable. Yeah, that's more than they do here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, uh, they couldn't meet together, uh, but they training them in groups of three and four at a time in homes or out in the countryside, and once a year they would uh, go up into the Carpathian Mountains and have a retreat, and this was the only time that they could get all of the students together with the various professors to exchange ideas and to uh, to pray together and uh, consider the future of the church. And if you get that far out into the mountains, apparently it's uh, reasonably safe to do that. And they were doing that. This young man was, uh, I'll never forget him. He was, he was just so tremendously impressive in his in his dedication to the Lord. Uh, he told me his house was a very dangerous house. He spoke in whispers the whole time we were there because his house was constantly monitored. Um, we had to be very careful what we said. And I'll never forget one thing he told me uh, during the conversation. Um, we were uh, talking about... Uh, the church in the West, and he he remarked, I understand that in the West you've set uh, the scripture to song. And I said, yes, that's true. Scripture songs are becoming quite popular in some American churches. He said, well, that's very nice, but to us, the Bible is not a song. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is not words. The Bible is not wisdom. But it's life. And the sparkle in his eye and the way he, he raised his hands and the lilt in his voice when he said, the Bible is life to us. And the scripture is in daily life. Um, just just thrilled me, sent uh, thrills up and down my spine. And, and to this day when I picture him saying that, it was, I was so impressed. Tell me, did they all speak English? Or did you have, uh, was your companion able to translate? The contacts which I was given in Holland were English-speaking people. They were all English-speaking. Yes, right. I met a number of people who were not, but uh, in, the, in each case I had some Romanian contact of mine with me who did speak English, so we were able to communicate. Not always well, but uh, at least we could. This young man uh, is the son of a, uh, a pastor who led a revival in Transylvania back in the late 40s and early 50s, and for which he was... Uh, thrown into prison, spent a number of years in prison. He, this young man and his brothers and sisters and mother were put in a concentration camp while the father was in prison. While the father was in prison, he was a cellmate of a very famous uh, Romanian dissident pastor, Richard Wormbrand. And they were very close oh, family friends of Wormbrand. Yes, it that was, was his father. That was and uh, so the, they're very close family friends. So this is a, a very powerful family. In fact, all the brothers and sisters now are engaged in some kind of uh, kingdom activity full-time, either as pastors, as professors, or as uh, wives of pastors or professors that are actively in. Wormbrand would like to know that, that you met them. I'm sure he would. I don't know if he's maintained contact with this, uh, the father of this young man, who is still alive, I believe. Uh, I couldn't say that for sure anymore, but 
the father the mother has written a book about their experiences he gave me the Romanian name and said there was an English translation but he couldn't remember the name of it so I would pass it on to you if I could but I don't know the title she used a pen name by the name of Julia Francis the uh, young man is also writing a book another book right now he's written several uh, the book is based on the on the theme of the the, the dishes in the temple he was telling me uh, how the the children of Israel as they left Egypt left with the the treasures of Egypt and eventually turned those treasures the gold and so on into to some uh, degree the dishes of the temple and uh, the theme of this book is how Christians can take the the resources of the world and sanctify them and, and dedicate them to the service of the Lord which uh, struck me again as being very much a reconstructionist idea mm-hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that uh, he will be able to get this book published now that uh, conditions are freer there and the, the curriculum that they're using in the seminary has been all hand copied handwritten he showed me a number of their books and they all of the the books are the all handwritten. That they use are all handwritten. He asked. He said they had managed to uh, acquire a computer, but they were unable to use it because they had no computer discs. So I have since uh, my return to the United States um, acquired a number of computer discs by donation of a friend of mine, and he has sent those on to Hungary to be smuggled into Romania. Perhaps now they can be taken in freely. So. Uh, I went on from that place to uh, the city of Arad where I had been before and met with a number of my former contacts there. I had lost track of a a very active and important pastor since my 1987 visit. I think I've told his story both on the tape and also in the Chalcedon Report, a young lay pastor who had been denied ordination in a large church in Arad and had kind of dropped out of view and I was not able to contact him in the interim. I feared I had received reports that he had been uh, sent into the army and that other reprisals had been taken against him. So I feared for his safety. When I came there, I met with my main contact who knew this pastor and asked about him. And uh, my contact... uh, seemed reluctant to talk about it. In fact, would not tell me what had happened to him. He only told me that there had been a scandal. That's all he would tell me. I desperately wanted to meet this man, this young pastor, to find out what had happened to him. Uh, So since I could not get any information any other way, uh, I went walking and driving through the city to where I thought I remembered his house was to see if I could find it. And could not identify it. As I was walking down the street, uh, again, I committed this to prayer, and immediately as I began to pray, uh, out from a doorway, not 20 feet in front of me, this young man emerged and got, was ready to get in his car with his wife. And I was so astonished to see him so suddenly like that. I, I, I shouted his name and ran up to him, and he recognized me, and we threw our arms around each other. And uh, he took me back into his house and told me what had happened to him. He, in fact, had been denied ordination and had been uh, effectively thrown out of his church. 
actually he resigned his position within the church because they had sent in a the Baptist authorities who in fact were communists had sent in a another pastor that he was supposed to work with but he said the situation would have been one of constant conflict and he would not have been able to minister in a biblical way so he resigned and instead he went out into the countryside and organized some more churches in small villages and in the year before I had come there one church that he was pastoring had grown from 60 to 120 members had doubled its size in a year's time and he was ministering in a number of small villages the Lord is mightily blessing his ministry there because he has been a, a faithful believer he's lost uh, every privilege uh, because of his resistance um, he had a good job as an engineer his wife is a doctor uh, she still practices uh, on an, in an unofficial capacity uh, but they've they've suffered greatly because of his uh, insistence on being a, a faithful pastor well his circumstances will I'm sure change now well I certainly hope so and pray so uh, although there's much to be suspicious about and uh, what's happening in Romania you, you have to see the hand of the Lord in it all also um, I'm convinced of that uh, the Lord has heard the cries of his people there and the cries of his people on behalf of Romanians in the West as well. Matter of fact, the Revolution Act, if we can call it that, and I believe it was, actually was instigated by Christians. The incident in Timisoara, which touched off the Revolution, began with uh, at the home of Pastor uh, Laszlo Tukes, whose name was given to me when I was in Budapest, and I was asked to to visit him and encourage him because just before I got there he had given his famous interview to Hungarian television about religious persecution in Romania and uh, because of this uh, he was in grave danger for his life in fact his chief assistant was murdered right after the interview his body was found in the woods nearby Timisoara this incident uh, when the secret police began to move in on him as many as 400 or several thousand, according to some reports, believers surrounded his house and, and set up a, a physical barrier of bodies, including children, a ring around his house to prevent uh, the Securitate forces from arresting him. The result was that the tanks moved in and simply rolled over the people, shot them and rolled over them, and including children were, were massacred in this way. The tanks just ran, ran them flat. And it was this kind of brutality which uh, the Romanian people finally decided they had had enough. That was the catalyst. And this is what sparked, sparked the revolution. Isn't it interesting that so little uh, of that aspect of the revolution is reported here? It was initially reported. In fact, a small item on the bottom of the editorial page in the, in the Wall Street Journal, in fact, reported that angle that it was the believers who started it. But after that, the subject was dropped completely in never once did you hear any more about the role of believers and matter of fact there's never been as far as I can tell one more report about what the fate of this Pastor Lazo took he says man nobody knows I don't know what's happened to him well our time is up for this hour but we will continue uh, this discussion Gary 
Thank you very much, and God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules. Dot com.